Of late, I've had occasion to turn again to the work of Jacques Ellul, the 20th century French scholar and lay theologian, regarded by some as the most prolific and insightful Christian social critic of the last century. Specifically, I was reminded of his critique of what he called technical humanism by the recent discussions of both the documentary The Social Dilemma and the Center for Humane Technology, with which the film is associated. Several individuals connected with the center, former Google employee Tristan Harris, most prominent among them, appear in the documentary about the social ills of social media. Writing in The Technological Society, which was first published in 1954, Ilul noted that the claims of the human being have thus come to assert themselves to a greater and greater degree in the development of techniques. This is known as humanizing the techniques. But Ilul, who had up to this point in his book gone to great lengths to demonstrate how technique had thoroughly captured society, was not impressed. Elul defined technique as the totality of methods rationally arrived at and having absolute efficiency for a given stage of development in every field of human activity. In other words, Elul understood that what mattered most about modern technology was not any one artifact or system, but rather a way of being in the world. This form of life or fundamental disposition precedes, sustains, and is reinforced by the material technological order. When we consider the question of human flourishing, we do well to ask, as Dr. Horner has taught us so well, what frames what? What sets the terms for what counts as human flourishing? Today, there are many examples of new devices, apps, and tools that promise to help us lead healthier lives, make better decisions, find peace of mind, and much more besides. But these technologies, seemingly designed with our good in mind, do little to change the status quo that rendered them necessary. Would we need mindfulness apps if we weren't already living in a sea of digitally mediated distraction? Would we need to count our steps if we lived in places built at a more humane scale which invited walking or held jobs that did not involve sitting endlessly behind screen? Rarely is there an effort to ask what is good for the human being as such. Instead, as Alol already recognized more than half a century ago, the real concern is to keep the human component of the larger technological order working marginally well, even if that larger order is fundamentally inhospitable to human beings. So, for example, Alol went on to observe that if we seek the real reason for humanizing technology, we, quote, hear over and over again that there is something out of line in the technical system, an insupportable state of affairs for a technician. A remedy must be found. But Elul invites us to ask, what is out of line? According to the usual superficial analysis, Elul answers, it is man that is amiss. The technician thereupon tackles the problem as he would any other but he considers man only as an object of technique and only to the degree that man interferes with the proper function of technique. In other words, he continued, technique reveals its essential efficiency in discerning that man has a sentimental and moral life. These factors are, for technique, human and subjective. But 
if means can be found to act upon them, to rationalize them and bring them into line, they need not be a technical drawback. Of course, man as such does not count. This humanizing of technology presumes the existing technosocial status quo and ultimately serves its interests. It only amounts to a recalibration of the person so that they may fit all the more seamlessly into the operations of the existing techno-economic order of things. That techno-economic order is itself rarely questioned. It is mostly taken for granted, the myth of inevitability covering a multitude of sins. I'm not sure we can say that contemporary proponents of humane technology reason precisely by this logic, but neither do I think that they avoid ending up in much the same place, practically speaking. Consider the proliferation of devices and apps, some of which the Center for Humane Technology promotes, which are designed to gather data about everything from our steps to our sleep habits in order to help us optimize, maximize, manage, or otherwise finally calibrate our bodies and our minds. The calibration becomes necessary because the rhythms and patterns of our industrialized and digitized world have proven to be inhospitable to human well-being, while nonetheless alleviating certain forms of suffering. One might say that while for many, although certainly not all, modern technological society has managed to supply various material needs, it has been less adept at meeting many of our non-material needs. And it would be a serious mistake to imagine that only our material needs mattered. So now the same techno-economic forces present themselves as the solution to the problems they have generated. In Elul's terms, the answer to the problems generated by technique is the application of ever more sophisticated and invasive techniques. The more general technological milieu is never challenged, and there's very little by way of a robust account of what human flourishing might look like independent of the present technological milieu. It seems impossible to speak of a technical humanism, Ilul concluded after some further discussion of the matter. It was more likely in his view that human beings would simply be forced to adapt to the shape of the technological system. The whole stock of ideologies, feelings, principles, beliefs, etc. that people continue to carry around and which are derived from traditional situations, these, Elul believed, would only be conceived as unfortunate idiosyncrasies to be eliminated so that the techno-economic system may operate ever more efficiently. It is necessary, and this is the ethical choice, to liquidate all such holdovers, he continued sarcastically, and to lead humanity to a perfect operational adaptation that will bring about the greatest possible benefit from the technique. Adaptation becomes a moral criterion. Now, while readers of the Technological Society would be forgiven for assuming that Ilul was overly fatalistic, providing neither a path forward nor any measure of hope, that was not exactly true. It's just that Ilul intended for readers to engage the whole of his corpus, over 40 books, and read his sociological works in dialectical tension with his theological reflections, in which Kierkegaard and the Swiss theologian Karl Barth loom large. One might even say that, in this expectation, Ilul was, in fact, overly optimistic. In any case, 
he did make an argument for the value of freedom as it arises out of a condition of perceived necessity presented by contemporary technology. It was precisely against the background of necessity that freedom could exist. To one interviewer, he said, I would say two things to explain the tenor of my writings. I would say that as long as men believe that things will resolve themselves, they will do nothing on their own. But when the situation appears to be absolutely deadlocked and tragic, then men will try to do something. Seen in this light, Elul's work was an effort not simply to instruct, but also to provoke. And it is to provoke us towards the realization of a measure of freedom available only when we fully reckon with the reality that opposes it. I would only add this note in closing. We ought to understand freedom as having two dimensions, freedom from and freedom for. Too often we fail to consider that freedom is fully realized only when it is conceived not only as a freedom from restraint, but also as a freedom to fulfill a deeper calling toward which freedom itself is but a penultimate means. The two are related but not identical. What Ilul would have us see is that the modern technological order tends to promise the former while simultaneously eroding the latter.